I think I first became conscious of the ways that human suffering, this question of um, what we might call social justice, was so closely tied to what we do to the land, to the earth around us, that those two things belong to each other. And that was a really profound sort of, I guess, awakening for me. Hello and welcome to the Together podcast. It's a conversation about faith justice and how to change the world. I'm Anna and today I'm joined by Adam and Matt. Hey everybody, how's it going? Hey guys, how's it going? Yes, yeah, going good, thanks. Coming In this up episode... with your own original. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Literally, I'm like, hey guys. I, was, I, thought, I thought of something to say. And Adam's I... like, hey guys, how's it going? <laughs> Coffee and paste. Right. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Hannah Malcolm, Anglican Ordinant, who is writing her theology PhD on climate grief. She's also the editor of Words for a Dying World, which brings together voices from across the world, from the Pacific Islands to the pipelines of Canada, from farming communities in Namibia to activism in the UK. She's also a board member of Operation NOAA. But before we hear from her, it's time for our link-up section. This is where we link up the intersection of faith and justice and hear from one of you or someone new. So yeah, welcome everyone. We are chatting to Scarlett today. Scarlett has actually appeared on another episode, episode 60. So if you like what she says today, make sure you check out that as well. But yeah, Scarlett, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, Hello. Hello, everyone. Hello, Tear Fund. Uh, I'm Scarlett. I'm 22. I previously worked as a youth worker uh, in my local community where I was really passionate about young people and authentic discussion around mental health. But I have, yeah, recently continued the passion, but lost the job, well, didn't lose the job, but resigned from the job and um, working in the radio industry at the moment. That's so cool. Yeah, so cool as well, because the last time you were on here, you were a youth worker. So, Mm. so much can change Mm. in a couple of months. But yeah, what you said in January, we were talking about New Year's resolutions, and you said that this was your year of go. And you also wanted to drive to Wales. Have you done that yet? (laughs) Oh, you know what? You know what? No, I'll be be real. I haven't driven to Wales, although I, mm, I am actually tomorrow. So technically, let's tick that off the list. I remember the last time I was on, I spoke about the fact I was running the marathon. That's oh what no, Scarlett, I, I haven't done anything. I haven't run at all since I last. Week I was going to ask. I wanted to check in. No, that's embarrassing. That. The accountability in public. I have. I literally haven't done anything. Oh, you didn't even sign up. No, no, no. Like real. Like I was just chatting. Absolutely no integrity in what I was saying. Oh, Anna, you are making me feel so much better though. Because I mean. I like to say I'm a woman of my word, but this marathon, it ain't happening. Maybe in 2023. Oh. I know, I know. But aside from that, you asked how my go thing was. It's going. Yeah, it is going well. I mean, other other than um, the marathon and stuff like that, I'm still trying to be, I don't know, just like pushing myself to try new things and go out my comfort zone to lo- not let my anxiety get in the way. I, I was speaking to you earlier that this week is the first week of a new job that I'm currently doing. Congratulations. Thank you very much. The the first day of the new job, you know, it went really well. I loved it. And then the second day was just, guys, it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. I just felt really anxious, you know? Mm -hmm. And so on my third day, I woke up and I was like, okay, I'm recognizing that I'm feeling super anxious right now. I'm feeling under pressure. I'm feeling really incapable of going in and pushing myself to like learn and to be surrounded by new people 
And I just got really overwhelmed by all of these feelings. And I, I physically felt the change in my body. And it's quite funny, actually. I came downstairs and my dad had been going through loads of um, old childhood stuff. And he found a letter that I wrote to him when I was 10 years old. Oh. I know, honestly. And it was when he was going through a really like rocky patch at work, I think. And I mean, I was quite impressed with myself because I was 10. Some of the stuff I was writing, I was like, hello. Like, that's pretty, that's wisdom. Yeah. But, um, no, I, 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 wrote, I wrote to him. I was like, dad, like um, some, some days in your life are good. Some days are bad but that's what being a human is and you just have to go with it or something. But you know what? On that day, that letter came at the perfect time because my younger self really encouraged like my present self to like, just go for it, go Mm -hmm. for it in the day. So in all honesty, I stuck on Nelly Furtado. I blasted like all of those golden tunes. Yeah. And, um, I was like, right, let's just go and ended up having a really good day because I just put my anxiety to the side and um, yeah, didn't didn't let it dictate like how my day was going to be. And that for me, I was like, bossed it. Do you know Progress. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. Thanks for sharing so honestly as well. Yeah, one of the reasons we brought you on as much as yeah your amazing wit talent etc was also um to talk about mental health because mental health awareness week when this comes out and yeah I think you've spoken a bit on your podcast just about living in your 20s and like how it can bring a lot of anxiety there's like a lot of pressure I mean I'm 22 as well so I feel the pressure of like especially in the last week of wanting to do like the next unique thing like making Mm. sure we're making a difference and I guess as yeah as a Christian as well just like wanting to make sure that we're like glorifying God and like seeing change happen so yeah I would love to chat to you a bit about that as well um and how you find it how do you deal with that pressure feeling like you need to be further than you are oh man what a good question what a good question well I'm still working it out you know yeah yeah I think the main thing is that I'm I'm aware of of the external pressure, you know, mm. because as people um, living in your living in your twenties, um, we tell ourselves that or we we hear about all of this pressure uh, spoken about, whether that's pressure to you know be in a high flying career or to be in a stable relationship or to have mm. a really close knit group of mates, we hear all of this spoken, but it's really key that we remember that that's not necessarily the truth. That's not what the right way of living looks like. And that's, you know, what's fundamentally creating this external pressure. So yeah, just acknowledging that there's no right or wrong way in living your twenties in terms of where you need to be, what you need to be doing, who you need to be doing all of that with. Um, and acknowledging that we all we all live our lives in unique ways. We all have our different gifts, um, our our different perspectives on lives. Um, some of us are creative. Some of us have got like amazing brains that can figure out algorithms and numbers and all of that. Uh, and that those take us to different places. And then that's all right. And actually, it should be celebrated. I think mm-hmm. because that's where the beauty of beauty of diversity comes in you know diverse minds diverse living and I think we should release that in each individual 
Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I remember there was a time when a lot of my friends were getting promoted and I was like, God, like, why am I not? And I was kind of like praying about it. And I just felt like God reminded me of like how, because he knows each of us like individually, there's a set like path. He's not yeah. a set path as in you have to like follow the right way. But like the path that I'm on is what he says is best for me. Yeah. And even if it might look like I'm in a valley at one point and someone else yeah. is on the top of a mountain, like mm-hmm. my mountain moment will come and kind of like you don't know the journeys that different people have gone on. And then another thing I think is um I remember reading a post which said just like I think it was actually Governor B on his Instagram he just said never before has he felt like across like across all of his friends like everyone that he knows I'm acting as if I know Governor B I don't it's on his Instagram <laughs> um just that he has seen like so many people struggling and mm-hmm. I think in the last like two years I don't want to blame the pandemic for everything but I did like I did read an article about how just mental health wise we're all just on like a lower level of like motivation and just like encouragement and yeah a lot more of us are struggling have you seen that and how do you yeah do you have any encouragement for people who just feel like life's just been rubbish oh totally totally I mean I've been there I've been there and I remember I mean you you might relate Anna but I graduated um during you know the peak of COVID kind of yeah that was a time I was working in my local restaurant and yeah, I found it really hard. I find it re- found it really hard because I I lost motivation and yeah, just comparison was sneaking in and yeah, I just felt totally lost in it all. But it was from the encouragement from honestly my mates. Gosh, they pulled me through that season. Mm. They were like, "No, Scarlett, like this is what you're good at. Like God's given you these gifts so that you can literally be launched into this career." So I think if you're lacking motivation, first of all, no matter what phase of life you're in, don't panic. <laughs> We've all been there. And mm, it's, part that's of so life. True. it's part of being human. You're not alone in it. But honestly, seasons of, of feeling a little bit lost or unmotivated, uh, they pass and they really are just seasons. So I think my advice for that would be find what you're passionate about. Find what gets you excited, even if it's like something really small that you think, oh, no way could I find life purpose from this. You know, like if you like taking photos of caterpillars or something, I don't know, like do it and see where that takes you, see how it evolves. And I promise you that passion will be used for something, Mm -hmm. you know, far bigger. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, I think that's so important about like it being God given as well, because I think even if we don't, I think it's sometimes with our emotions, like they do hide the truth. And like, even Mm -hmm. if we don't feel like we can do things Mm. or that there's like a purpose or it's like even hard to find like passion, God can like still bring that out of us. And like he doesn't need us to be in the right place or feel like we're in a good spot for him to be able to do that. But yeah, it's been so great to chat to you. You just mentioned your podcast Instagram. Do you want to promote it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel bad promoting it because I don't have anything new right now, but maybe I will on the next week. Um, Yeah, (laughs) I've I've got a podcast called Mind Over Mirrors. It's available on Spotify and it talks about um, Gen Z and mental health and social pressures and fundamentally how we can live freely uh, amidst all of that. So, yeah, give it a listen if you'd if you'd fancy it. Amazing. Well, Scarlett has had a long day at the office so we're gonna let her go now but thank you so much and yeah I'm sure you'll be on again oh thank you Anna big love to all of you guys
Welcome to our The Plugin section. We plug into what's going on in the world, offering a perspective based on our faith. Approximately 8,000 indigenous people protested in Brasilia for a 10-day protest at the start of April. They organised a second protest march on Congress, where they are protesting President Jair Bolsonaro's government legislation. This legislation would open their protected lands to commercial mining and agriculture. Guys, what do you think about this? Yeah, I think this is really incredible that there's 8,000 Indigenous people protesting. It just shows the number of people who are saying that this isn't okay. What I learned when I was researching this is that Indigenous people are 5% of the global population, but they're protecting 82% of the global biodiversity in the world. I think that's crazy. It just shows us so much like why we need to be listening to Indigenous people mm. because they're the ones who are closest to biodiversity and they know what it means to protect it. So the fact that 8,000 people are marching against government legislation definitely shows that, yeah, that it's not okay. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really cool. Like You do often see Indigenous communities, Indigenous people at like the kind of forefront of those protests, whether there's protests against pipelines in Canada and America, North America, or like there in South America, or even at the front of, you know, the protests at COP26 when we were there, they were they were sort of fronted by indigenous people. Just, I guess these, these are the people, they're protecting that much land also because they're the ones that are going to be affected the most by climate change or by things going wrong and their lands becoming unlivable on. I think, yeah, yeah, it's really cool. I think it's interesting to note how how many things are fronted by them, how many of these protests are fronted by them, considering that they're such a small percentage of the global population. I think it maybe points mm. to it. Like, I, don't, I think you have to be careful when you're generalising about Indigenous people because there are lots of different communities and there's lots yeah. of different um, groups and they all have different ways of life. But it seems that they, they're quite often more connected to the, the natural world than we are mm. maybe in in our western societies and and they are yeah they're more willing to stand up to their governments and fight for for what they they believe is right and what they what they want to protect yeah and according to the brazil's indigenous people articulation 13 percent of brazil's territory is protected indigenous reservation land with 98 percent in the amazon region however 400 indigenous communities are still struggling to get their ancestral lands recognized so i think it's just it's really disheartening as well that they've been at the forefront of the fight against climate injustice and they're really trying to like they've been speaking up for ages yet 400 of the communities aren't getting their lands recognized in this 10-day protest they're protesting against the fact that there isn't enough indigenous representation in the parliament in brazil but there's actually no indigenous elected officials there and it's just crazy that they can be so close to biodiversity and knowing what it means to protect it yet they aren't given a seat at the table and that's an injustice in itself like even outside of the climate crisis yeah i think it's also really horrible that we've got another example of a government that is putting profits before people. We see it, we've seen it so many times where uh, the opportunity to make some money is always ahead of the impact on the environment or people who may be living in a in a particular space. And yeah, we've got a very small group of people, but they're actually protecting a massive amount of the the Earth's global biodiversity. And so yeah, any opportunities for us to to join them in in that fight even if it's to just amplify their voices or make known what's happening to to our to a larger audience i think that is a way that we can get involved in supporting these people and, and being part of that fight too 
Yeah, and I spoke to a Colombian youth activist and I asked her what she thought climate justice meant and she said it was anti like anti the patriarchy, anti capitalism and anti colonialism. And I think like what you were saying, Matt, about putting profits over people and just this consumerism of wanting to like gain resources which leads to exploitation of the environment and of people, which all contributes to capitalism and this like economic development agenda that we're like that the West is always trying to push. It's just so sad to see the cost of that. And actually I don't think God's king would have just been about producing things at the cost of people like Jesus always put people as his like priority and always wanted to like empower yeah and like listen to those who are facing things and like came to heal it's just it just feels like the government's doing the opposite of like healing a lot and they're actually just taking more because some of the knock-on effects of this will be increased deforestation in the rainforest also it's creating like more violent clashes between land invaders and local tribal groups and it's just yeah just that division that's increasing like there could be unity like in god's kingdom there would want to be unity and it's just really sad to see a government that could be established for justice actually doing the opposite of what jesus would call it to do i think it's like one of the most shocking things and particularly in in the amazon rainforest and in, in those areas of south america is that quite often these things that are happening to their land are actually illegal under the country's laws you know they're they're it's illegal logging or illegal mining or things like that which then tend to be even more polluting because you know they're not doing it in the legal way which maybe has some sort of safeguards as to water pollution and air pollution and things but that there's no sort of will from the government to to fight these things even though that it's against the laws that they that those governments have written i think is is crazy yeah so one of the banners from their protest said the future is indigenous and i think it's just yeah such an important slogan about being able to reclaim identity and reclaim yeah like who's actually like holding the power yeah we talked to our partners in brazil and it was just really great to hear from them because yeah we want to be conscious that we're speaking from a uk context so we wanted to know what um they were doing um, and whether they were part of the protest and they were saying that they carried out a great movement. They were able to support the participation of indigenous Christians and their leaders. So they're able to be in Brasilia for the act of protest. They also were holding webinars with indigenous artists and leaders. But it's just really, yeah, it's really exciting that we can see like Christians at the front of that protest as well. And it kind of, I think it really challenges that whole idea of like politics isn't part of faith. Actually, it is. And, you know, part of our like calling as Christians as well is to really like be like modern day prophets to like speak truth to power. So, yeah, it's just I feel like this protest is a really exciting way to see Christians being part of that and getting involved when we need to call out wrongs for being wrong. Totally, totally. So thank you, Anna and Adam, for sharing and yeah, just really highlighting this really important thing that's been happening. And just want to encourage all of our listeners to do go on to news sites and check out this for yourself and see what's been happening in Brazil and see how through maybe through your own social media how you can share about what's been happening and help to get these voices amplified across the world. Let's go on to our interview now with Hannah Malcolm. Yeah, hi Hannah, so nice to have you on the podcast. I learned a bit about you when I was at Christian Aid and just I had the pleasure to hear you speak all about climate grief and just what it means to be a healthy community. And yeah, I think specifically on climate, I really feel like you're a voice of authority and one who's been stewarding that and just working out how we really speak God's heart out to this world and to a broken world. But yeah, I'd love for you to just introduce yourself and kind of share what you've been up to. Thank you. It's great to be on the podcast. I am, I guess my sort of day job at the moment is that I am training to be a priest in the Church of England 
and I'm writing a PhD on a theology of climate and ecological grief. So how we can think theologically about those experiences of the world and my guess my spare time, whatever that means, is um, <laughs> I do a lot of writing and organizing around climate justice in the church. At the moment, I'm a member of the Church of England Environment Working Group and I sit on the board of Operation NOAA. Um, and in the last year, I um, got involved in the Young Christian Climate Network, which was set up and um, organized a pilgrimage to COP26. So of less recent history, I was the founder of Christian Climate Action Manchester. Um, so the Manchester branch of Christian Climate Action. So I've spent a fair few years in the sort of climate justice and church arena. And uh, that's where I sort of sit outside of my um, my primary work. Well, you know, a lot going on <laughs> in all of the different ways. But it feels, yeah, as you were saying, that they all link together. Before we get into like what you're doing and just, yeah, a lot of like what you want to say, um, you're probably a big influence to other people when they think about climate grief and they think about how like, how do I be a Christian and what the world looks like? But I wanted to know what has been your biggest influence or who has? I was quite lucky, I think, that I grew up in a Christian family where climate science and what it means for us and Christian faith weren't seen as sort of opposed to each other or not related to each other. So my granddad was a climate scientist and also an evangelical Christian. Maybe one of the more surprising consequences of that as a background growing up was that I knew that climate change was a really serious problem but also that I knew people who I really trusted and I believed that those people were working really hard and they were to try and push governments and corporations in the right direction. So I think strangely enough, that knowledge about the sort of work people were doing led me to believe that by the time I was an adult, climate change would be under control, that we would have sorted oh. it out. Yeah, that I, you know, <laughs> I think when you're younger, especially, you know, you really trust that adults know what they're doing <laughs> mm. um, and you particularly the adults that you know so and so I didn't as a teenager think that climate change would be the defining issue of my lifetime I didn't think mm. that at all um, I thought that it was it would be something that people were people were working on Maybe another really powerful influence on me was that when I was 16, my parents became guardians for um, three teenagers and a baby who arrived in the UK as refugees from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, and through my relationship with them, I think I first became conscious of the ways that um, human suffering, this question of um, what we might call social justice, um, was so closely tied to what we do to the land, to the earth around us, that those two mm -hmm. things belong to each other. And that was a really profound sort of, uh, I guess, awakening for me, that that realization. I think there's also been the background influence in my own personal faith journey of sort of walking with both family members who've experienced serious illness and also being diagnosed with quite severe depression after a series of traumatic events. So my own faith journey has been one where I've had to sort of learn what it means to follow Jesus in these quite bleak places where there isn't a quick fix or a simple answer, where it seems as though things don't change for a very long time, that we don't feel like we're in control. And so I think those kinds of experiences have prompted me to ask the questions that I now look at, which is, I guess, this hard question of what it means to faithfully follow Jesus through an era of climate breakdown and how I might best equip others to do the same thing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And thanks for sharing so vulnerably about everything that you've gone through. I mean, first of all, it sounds like it's been a massive blessing the family that you've grown up in and kind of like having those day-to-day -day conversations about the climate so thanks for then blessing the rest of us by like sharing that out but yeah I could imagine that it would be quite a challenging I guess your perceptions of God must change in the midst of this injustice and like different situations that you've gone through that seem to not change 
for a lot of people who have experienced, I guess, traumatic events or who have gone through longer term periods where there's the sense of a feeling of abandonment or a loss of a, an understanding of the place of God in the situation you find yourself in. One of the biggest challenges is what can often be the church culture, which is that, well, this can be fixed and we're going to fix it. And through, through prayer and intercession, through support, we can fix these problems in your life and then you'll be able to return to the relationship that God wants to have with you. And, you know, sometimes that that does work. Um, sometimes people experience miraculous healing. Um, sometimes situations can be miraculously restored. I, I personally know friends who have, have had ex experienced miraculous healing from, from physical and mental illness or from, from traumatic experiences. But sometimes that doesn't happen. And I think one of the things we struggle with as a church is knowing how to be faithful to people and to situations long after our timeline has run out. One of the things I think my experiences have taught me about God is that, and really more about human nature, is that we run on very, very short timelines. We we find it really difficult to stay with one thing or one experience for very long. You know, we want to move on to the next thing. We struggle with the idea of staying in a place of a particular feeling of loss or uncertainty, but God does not work on our timelines and in the Bible, we see these uh, generations of people who uh, found themselves in exile. We can look at someone like the prophet Jeremiah, who gave a lifetime of weeping in service of the, the message that God had given him. And those timelines seem very alien to us because we're part of this very quick fix demand consumer mm. culture. But I think that's maybe one of the things that I've learned about relating to God through uncertainty and loss, that my timelines are not the same as God's and the church's timelines are often not the same as God's and I think maybe that's where we we can really learn something about about how to um, commit faithfully um, over over years over lifetimes um, to the people that we're called to serve um, to the world that we're called to serve yeah that is really really powerful something I've been thinking about is how like love perseveres and the endurance needed to like be yeah to follow God and to do what he wants and it just sounds like that's something that God's really like taught you amongst your life so far and yeah I think there can be this real big pursuit of like instant gratification or like the next big thing or making sure that we're the generation that sees the change but we're still standing on like the shoulders of generations beforehand and also we're standing on the injustice beforehand that we then need to like you know kind of like think through unpick and work out how we like yeah. see that different so yeah that's really powerful so yeah I guess in terms of the timeline sometimes another quick fix or like a quick something we want to know now is like what our calling is what our purpose is did you did you have a sense that this was something that you wanted to do from when you were I do remember as a as a teenager um going to a Christian conference and they said oh you know if if you want to serve God um, or you want to give your life to service of God and you have a sense of God calling you to some kind of ministry or work um, you know raise your hand and someone will come and pray for you and I thought I think that's what I want to do I don't I don't feel like I've got been prompted but that sounds like a good thing to do so I raised my hand and because of the sort of um, I don't know the world I grew up in I didn't think that women could be church leaders mm. or be theologians. And so in my head, I was raising my hand and basically being like, I'll be a missionary because that's what women <laughs> were allowed to do. Yeah, <laughs> Women were allowed to go and be missionaries and evangelists, but not lead churches or not, not be theologians. Um, and so I think there's something quite funny in that also about that, like even in the, the constraints that I had placed on God's calling on my life, 
God still called me and still began a sense of calling in me, even though I hadn't identified fully what that was. Mm. Um, but over time, I think for me, understanding my vocation, understanding my calling came from trying different doors. I tried lots of different things and I trusted God to walk through the ones that opened, um, even if I wasn't sure entirely why. So mm. I, I had the door to pursuing some kind of ordained ministry in the church, um, opened for me in a way that I didn't expect and it had not been really something that I'd considered seriously and I walked through it and in part I walked through it because I think a significant part of discerning calling is in trusting what other people can discern in you so mm -hmm. trusting that others might be able to see gifts and potential that you haven't seen or haven't felt that you have I've realized that that's one of the best things we can do for another person pay enough attention to them that we can see the gifts God has given them and then tell them what those are by the grace of God, call each other into service by seeing each other and seeing each other's gifts. I think that's so good. I think often we dismiss encouragement as this kind of like fluffy, sweet thing that we can say to people. And, you know, that's great. But one, I think when we're really questioning things about ourselves, it's really important that someone speaks life and speaks truth into that in any kind of like challenge that comes but also like Barnabas in Acts was such a core part of the church being built and what that looked like and like he was known for his encouragement so yeah I think that's really powerful and I know that my life has been really shaped by people I think having more confidence in me than I had in myself so yeah I guess for people listening like encourage your friends you know send that text do that thing that you need to often it's more subtle you might see something in them that they may not even see in themselves so so yeah, I guess talking to what you spent a lot of time thinking about, praying about, speaking out about, is just climate grief. How would you describe climate grief and how do you navigate it in yeah, a world that seems to be becoming more broken? Climate or ecological grief is has become kind of almost a technical term that we've started to use to try and describe, uh, give an umbrella to a number of different experiences we have. So that might include dread around climate breakdown, uh, like dread over the future, it might include grief over destroyed ecosystems or destruction of particular places that we love. Um, it might include um, anxiety. It might include things like species loss, um, grief. And there are lots of other terms that people use as well. So it's kind of a little collection of terms. So people might have heard of things like climate or eco-anxiety, um, climate mm. trauma, um, eco-mourning. That's another one I've come across. Um, so there's been a real explosion of all of these terms in the last decade. Um, I think to coincide with the emerging consciousness around the reality of climate and ecological collapse. Um, but of course, even in that emergence, what we're naming is a much longer um, set of broken relationships. So the experience of grief or loss over the brokenness of the relationship between humans and non-human creation is a much longer history. And we've We've really just started to name it in English, I think, because it's become um, so, uh, I guess, like front page, it's become so urgent. Um, and it's a really difficult umbrella term, I think, um, because it's really shaped by our own experiences. Mm -hmm. So we grieve the loss of the places and the creatures that uh, for our future we might grieve. And those are our futures, the things we know, um, the things that we love. Um, our grief isn't necessarily the same as other people. Grief doesn't affect us the same amount. Um, there are many people already suffering the effects of climate change um, who are oppressed by poverty and are more vulnerable to extreme weather events and also have the least power to choose. So we might sort of talk about differing weights of grief. So my experience of grief that I might get triggered by watching a David Attenborough documentary is very different to 
the experience of climate climate grief, which is triggered by um, a traumatizing event like the loss of one's home because of mm -hmm. an extreme weather event. Um, but we're using the same language to talk about those things together. Or we might compare uh, young people experiencing this kind of grief and anxiety who face decades of turmoil ahead of them. And we might compare that to the grief that older people might feel who won't be here to see the worst effects of climate change. So it's, a, it's kind of a tricky term because we're trying to talk about so many different experiences under one umbrella. So like parking all that complex stuff for just a minute, <laughs> um, I might just offer a couple of things to help us think about it today, like some very basic first steps we can take mm. to navigating these experiences and how we might start to think about them as Christians. I think the first thing we can say is that we can talk about climate and ecological grief as a, as a kind of fitting or appropriate response to the death that sin brings about in the world. So it's proportionate to the loss that we are facing. And I think as Christians in particular, we should also ask God for the grace to sorrow over sin. So sin should prompt in us experiencing experiences of sorrow. We should feel repelled by the consequences of sin in the world. And I think climate and ecological grief at one level is, is trying to describe that. And the second thing I'd say is that grief should not be expressed alone. That's true of any kind of grief, but in particular, climate and ecological grief is grief over shared loss. Mm -hmm. So we're losing shared place. That means we need to listen to and, and join in with the stories of others who grieve um, so that we don't become wholly focused on our own experiences. And um, I think coming out of that, is that our grief as Christians come to, comes to its fullest expression in prayer. And um, we sometimes call this lament, which is grief, anger, despair, expressed as prayer to God. And lament is a, is a communal activity. It's something we do with other people. We gather all of our voices um, that cry out to God. Um, so that would be maybe just a couple of ideas to help people think through how to like put some words to their climate grief or what it means for them mm. yeah no that's so good I think you can feel the emotion and know that it's grief but then what you actually do about that or how it's different to different people I think it's important that you've brought that nuance because in some ways we can invalidate other people's experiences by just saying oh we're going through the same thing so I think knowing why and how and what that reflects in terms of yeah the intersectionality of that and how it, it links to your lived experience is really really important part of what happens when we name what we grieve is that we can become specific about the kind of loss we're facing and the response we should have. So mm. it doesn't become this abstract, overwhelming thing. Like none of us can grieve the death of the whole world. <laughs> we can't carry yeah, that on our shoulders, yeah. it's too much. So like, can we name the specific things that are prompting us in us and which things do we need to let go? So we might, for example, grieve something like the sort of consumer culture that we thought was okay for a long time and it's not really. Right. We might grieve the loss of the excitement that that brought. And, and that's something that as Christians, we need to learn to let go. So naming our experiences can help us to sort through that stuff as well. Yeah. When you talked about like lamenting with other people, I think the concept sounds really cool, but I like I've never done that and haven't really seen that in church spaces. So have you, yeah, do you have any stories from how, what that would look like? Like, have you got together with friends and kind of cried and prayed or yeah what would that prayer look like to do that yeah I don't know if you've noticed but we seem to like be going through a lament revival <laughs> like people yeah, are yeah. into lament again as a thing <laughs> so I hear, people, again. I hear people talk about it a lot without any real sense of like what that might mean in practice um, and what I'm not suggesting really is that uh, you know the thing to do is to try and create these very um, distressing emotions in other people 
so that mm. we can cry together in church. Like that's quite dangerous to do. We don't know what people's experiences are. We don't know the state of their mental well-being. So what I'm not suggesting is that we try and like manipulate people into feeling very, very sad and then telling them that we're going to pray and it's all going to be fine. Mm. Um, in our tradition as Christians, you know, going back thousands of years, we have a much longer tradition of treating um, prayers of lament over sin in the world as part of what we should do regularly when we gather together. So maybe it's helpful to think about it more like we know that as Christians, we should praise God, even if we don't feel happy. Okay, that's like something that you'll hear said a lot in churches that we praise God no matter where we are personally. In a similar way, I'd say that as Christians, we're called to lament over the suffering and the sin in the world, even if we don't personally feel sad. It's not sort of, I don't think, a one-off event type challenge to the church. It's more like, does lament have a place in our regular worship? Mm. How can we invite that together? How can we ensure that reflection on those stories, those experiences is a regular discipline for us as a church? Um, because that will begin to shape our attention. It will begin to shape what we do in response. One very concrete example from, from Christianity is that for a long time, we've had a practice of saying the Psalms that we find in the Bible. Many of those Psalms are Psalms of lament, and they are written to be said by the people together. So we have words to use. Mm. Um, the question is whether we'll find the time and the space to do that when we gather together in Christian communities. So maybe it's almost a little bit like separating out lamenters only for those who are really good at crying in public, <laughs> because yeah, not all yeah. of us are good at that and seeing it more like something that we commit to doing as a rhythm for the pattern of our lives mm. and it seems like this journey of praise like praise isn't you know you kind of you mentioned one bad thing and then so it's like but god you're still so good you're so good it's actually like that journey of this is what i'm looking at this is what's happening this is what we as a church as the world is like going through and then like still i will praise but i love what you said about using psalms and you said that like your faith has been a massive influence like over your life as well as all your different experiences. So what is like the hope thing? Not to like slam a bandaid on, let's just move on. But just in the midst of like lament, where are you finding hope and how does your faith come into that? Yeah, it's a really tricky question. You know, I, I often get asked what makes you feel hopeful by people. Um, and sometimes I wonder how much it's an avoidance strategy and how much it's like yeah. people really needing to know how to make sense of that in their mm. in their life. Um, and I think it does matter who's asking the question. Right. So like it's one thing to say, well, I'm not actually going to give platitudes to the powerful. Right. Like I'm not going to give hopeful words to people in power. Um, and it's another to like say I'm not going to give hopeful words to people who are already really burdened by suffering so the way that we like almost wield hope as a weapon is sometimes it matters who our audience is mm. um, yeah so that's something I think about a lot in relation to hope and I do think it really matters how we speak about it um, there's maybe just a couple of things I'd say um, to help people start thinking about it the first is that um, I think feeling hopeful is is some it's kind of a different question to being hopeful people. Mm. Um, so as Christians, we're described as people of hope. And that's a kind of identity that's based on a decision to live as though a new creation is coming in, whether that feels possible or not. 
So we talk about virtues in Christianity and hope, much like love, is not just a word to describe an emotion, but it's also a virtue that we can possess. And virtues are things we practice in our lives. They're not something that we just get given and then get to just have around. So I think one thing I'd say is that choosing to behave in hopeful ways is something that we're all encouraged to do regardless mm-hmm. of how we're feeling That's so good. and when we choose to behave in hopeful ways we invite other people in to make that choice too and note that we're hopeful people we're not individuals with private hopes we we're part of a wider community of people who have a particular hope and that is the encouragement that ensures we can behave in hopeful ways so I want to say that if you're a young person listening to this who feels overwhelmed or anxious or filled with grief or angry, those aren't in of themselves wrong ways to feel. I think they can even be a sign of grace that you've seen the reality of sin in the world and you want to reject it. You know, that the turmoil of emotions that you might feel in response to climate change are not wrong. The next step is to know that even in the middle of so much loss, you are given, each of us are given a choice to reject the powers of death in the world. And that's a choice that we make together. So one of the worst things we can do is take agency from people, take from people the idea that they have a choice. And I think often that's what hope looks like. It's, it looks like saying that actually we have the choice to reject this collectively. It's not something we do alone. I think hope and lament also belong together for me. So last year I edited a collection called Words for a Dying World, which gathers stories of grief and courage from across the global church. And one of the contributors to to the collection was Maria Andrade, who works for Tear Fund as a global lead for theology and network engagement. And in her chapter, she reflected on lament and mapped a spirit of lament as a journey which takes us towards the hope of healing and community restoration. So she says that to truly lament, we name the damage that we experience. We give space where that damage can be addressed. We allow grief to be expressed and then we act out of repentance. And that takes us towards the hope of restoring forgiveness. So as Christians, we believe that transformation is possible, not just in the world to come, but also here. And I think that that's the kind of basis upon which our hope rests, that it's a that it's a kind of calling to us to respond faithfully, knowing that God is a God of healing, even in the midst of feelings of hopelessness or feelings of loss yeah and just really want to thank you for how practical this is yeah we could have just floated around the con so just the fact that you've got so many steps for us to follow like is really it's really helpful and it reminds me of that um verse I think it's in Corinthians where it talks about like godly sorrow or like godly grief brings us to a place of repentance and I think the way that you've described it and like are sharing the stories of it being about sin I think is really important sin is sometimes a thing that we veil but actually like it all is rooted in that so the the fact that we even like have a hopeful choice to reject sin um is really powerful so thank you for that um but yeah you've said like a lot and there's a lot that you have like learned and a lot of authority I think and a lot of kind of prayers and time with God you spent to even like come up with all of this and these suggestions And I would just love it if you would be willing to pray for our audience, just that they would be able to step into more courage and step into more just this this challenge and this strength that you're walking in. Yeah, sure. So if it's all right with you, I wrote a prayer for Christian Aid's 75th anniversary book called A Prayer for Those Who Wish to Lament the Earth. Merciful God, if I must speak, let it not be my words. They stick to my tongue, to my hands. I trip over unclean lips and I cannot face my shame. If I must speak, let it not be my words. They are brittle and hard, fall short of tears, refuse to root in this stony soil. If I must speak, let it be my sister's words, my brother's words, 
their blood cries out from holy ground. You called them beloved when I did not. If I must speak, let it be Christ's words, whose weeping revived the dead, who was buried a seed, raised a tree, and whose leaves will heal the nations. Amen. Amen. That was beautiful. People want to find out more about you or they want to yeah, read your book. Would you mind just sharing um, the links to things? If you'd like to read Words for a Dying World, um, it was published by SCM Press. You can find it online. Uh, most of the author royalties have gone to um, support the work of Client Earth um, and the rest have been evenly split between um, the contributors to the book. Um, so you're supporting the work of those who contributed to the book. And you can find me on Twitter. On Twitter, there's a link to a, a web page that has a con- contact form. If people also want to contact me personally, that's fine. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I'll put those links in um, the description of this so you can follow it. But yeah, thank you so much, Hannah, for coming and for sharing and yeah, all of your tips. I think it's a lot for me to stew on and like think about more. So yeah, thanks for sharing. Thank you for having me. It's been great. And um, thank you for all the work on the podcast. Uh, It's been really exciting for me to go and have a little look at what you're doing as well. Thank you. So climate grief is a big topic. I think I both swing from the like, let's put a bandaid on it. There's hope, there's eternity, that's great. And then also, wow, it really is a crisis. The world really is burning. Oh my gosh, we need to do stuff. Like we need to be urgent. She said no one can like grieve the death of the whole world. Like we have to do it together. But also it's important to like name things that we are grieving so that we're able to process it. For you guys, where do you think you most often think about climate injustice and where do you think you most often grieve? That's a really great question, Anna. I guess the part about the climate crisis and injustice that impacts, I suppose, I grieve the most is just how, again, it's the countries that are having the the least impact on climate change that are being impacted the most. And it's just sort of like no fault of their own, but... They're bearing the brunt of increased temperatures, the threats of flooding, um, crops failing, all kinds of different things. And there are countries where they're not currently feeling the effects of climate change. And so they're being quite slow in terms of going for greener solutions. There's a whole hodgepodge of things involved with that because then it becomes harder to tax certain things and so on and so forth so in terms of long-term profits governments are thinking about things like that but yeah the 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 response from um, countries that are having a massive impact on climate change has been sort of slow and it's not been I guess progressive enough in terms of moving away from fossil fuels and and investing in greener technologies and greener forms of energy. Um, and yeah, that's I'd say that's the thing that grieves me the most and is constantly on my mind. Mm. Yeah, I think it's I think maybe it's it's similar for me. Yeah, it's the it's the loss of those environments that plenty of human pe- humans um depend on but also that like non-human uh animals and things um depend on uh, these these things as well and i think that's there's something that yeah i definitely grieve for i grieve for that, that anybody or anything that is that is losing its sort of homeland um because of because of what we're doing mm. yeah i think i grieve as well for um that those who have the most like right to be in the conversation 
whether that's like young people leading indigenous communities who are protecting biodiversity, whether that's countries on the front line, whether that's like refugees having to leave homes because of the climate crisis. I think I grieve that they, because of the way the system is right now, that they hold like less power. And so I think it's like a double grieve the fact that they're not in the conversation, but then grieve the fact that people have power that shouldn't like have power. And yeah, there's so many decisions being made by like the wrong people and that's just not mm. okay. But trying to work out how to shift that. Yeah, I guess like my tiny role in that. I think, yeah, I often think about that and how it's unfair. So yeah, I guess just the power and privilege in that. Yeah, I think like linked to that, I think I also grieve for and linked to what Matt was saying earlier, I grieve, grieve for the countries and the country's leaders who aren't doing anything at the moment. I grieve for like the kind of hearts of the people that have been kind of hardened to the the suffering of people in, around the world just kind of what's happened to our our societies that that we don't you know we're, we're more worried about what's going on in our own country or uh, relatively smaller problems that are happening in our own country as compared to huge um, issues where people are losing their their well, entire nations will, will end up kind of underwater by by the mid-century and things mm. Yeah, thanks both of you for sharing that. I think just to end on, I mean, I know people say it's the classic, you know, we talk about prayer. But I think like what Hannah said, grief with others comes to its fullest expression in prayer. Um, and that's what she would classify as like lament. I think it's just important that we, as painful it is, like keep talking about this and kind of things that we're like worrying about or just like seeing that we're processing that and like bringing it back to God. And yeah, let's be people who don't just jump on a lament revival because it's trendy, but actually like we stay committed to like what Jesus did and we see him lament and grieve and we see God's compassion for the world. So we want to be people who do the same. But yeah, climate climate anxiety and eco grief are conversations that we are having, as Adam said, um, that we've like had on our Instagram at We Are Tear Fund. But I also just wanted to let you know that we have a magazine where we write articles and we have a two-part series talking about why the new creation is good news for eco-anxiety. So yeah, we love, I'll drop the links below and we'd love for you to check them out. As Matt said, this podcast is about Mental Health Awareness Week and bringing in the climate crisis into that. But also we spoke to Scarlett who talked about her anxiety over things and what it means to be kind of a young person in this day and age. So we also have articles about mental health and how to cope with that. So I'll drop all the links below. But if you like what you heard today, please make sure you subscribe, give us a rating out of five, follow us on Instagram at We Are Tear Fund, and we are looking forward to coming back again in a couple of weeks with another episode. See you guys. Bye.